0: Hey, fellas, hope you're doing well. Hope you've had a good week so far and that you continue to have a good week. I invite you to open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 40. We'll be looking at Genesis chapter 40 today. As we've seen in our study of this last section of Genesis, we've been amazed by the incredible things that God seems to be doing, many different things all at once in the life of Joseph, providentially speaking. And as we get to Genesis chapter 40, we see the same is true. Providentially, God is taking the hardships and the disappointments and the difficulties in Joseph's life and is doing something marvelous, both in him and through him. Now, I'm sure Joseph understood some of the things that God was doing in his life, but I'm also quite confident that he didn't understand a lot of the things that God was allowing to happen in his life. But what's remarkable is that joseph trusted god and lived by faith through all of it including the things that he didn't understand now all of us experience things that we don't understand in this life things miserable things that happen to us or others that we love therefore i think this chapter is very important for us because it teaches us very practically how we like joseph are able to trust god and live by faith especially When difficult times come. So that's what we'll be looking at in Genesis chapter 40. Go ahead and turn there, starting in verse 1. Hear the word of God. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. The Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the Lord. In the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with him, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, Why are your faces cast down today? They said to him, We've had dreams and there's no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on that vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand and I took those grapes and I pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and I placed the cup into Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, this is the interpretation. The three branches are three days. And in three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me. When it is well with you, and please do me this kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and and here also I have done nothing that they should have put me in the pit. Now when the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head. In the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating out of it the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is the interpretation. The three baskets again are three days, but in three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree and the birds will eat the flesh from you. Now on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all of his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup into Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker, as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. This is the word of the Lord. Brothers, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that you've given us this time to to study your word, whether for doing it um, this evening or Thursday morning. Lord, we pray that you would bless our time together, that you would bless this study, um, that you would speak through me, your broken vessel, that you would guard my tongue from things that uh, are not helpful, and that you would use me to bless all of us. But ultimately, Father, we pray that your Spirit would show and do a marvelous work in our hearts using your Word to not just inform us, but transform us so that we might be like the greater Joseph. Our Lord Jesus Christ we love you father and it's in the blessed name of the risen King Jesus we pray amen okay I was reading Kent Hughes's uh, commentary in my study and in his commentary he makes the point that um, throughout human history one of the essentially uh, the past several centuries in human history one of the most prized possessions has been a refined sharp powerful sword And uh, he gives examples. Way back when in the East, there was the Damascus blade. Some of you historians may know more about that blade than I do. But that was one of the prized possessions in the East. Um, In the Renaissance period, there was the rapier blade, which through a special, secretive, refined process, it was the crown jewel of all blades of the age. People uh, desired that above all else. And on and on and on we go, and it's not just in history. It's you know strong, powerful blades have also been immortalized in mythology. You have King Arthur's uh, Excalibur. Um, what was it, Frodo Baggins' Sting Blade? <laughs> you even have lightsabers for Jedi Knights if you're into such things. Um, but they're always uh, symbols of of power. And it's not just the case in history or in mythology, but also in Scripture. The blade, the sword, is a powerful. Biblical metaphor. First off, it's a powerful biblical metaphor for the Word of God itself. We're told um, in Hebrews and Ephesians and elsewhere that the Bible is sharper than a two edged sword, any two edged sword of man. The, the Word of God is powerful, it's a powerful blade. We also see, too, not explicitly, but implicitly, that the human life is a powerful blade. The human life that is so honed in and so shaped. And crafted by God through the refining fires of life that is transformed into an instrument, a powerful instrument of redemption and salvation, a blade of salvation, to be wielded by God himself. And we see that in the life of Joseph, of all the miserable things that were happening to Joseph, all 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 those terrible things, by God's grace, Those things seasoned his life with sweetness. He was being refined. The the rough edges were being chipped off. That arrogance and that pride we saw in Genesis 37, that was deflating. He was building in faith, hope, and love to the degree that very soon, not only would he forgive his brothers who betrayed him, but that he would also willingly and compassionately save them when they didn't deserve it. It was through those hardships and trials and tribulations that we also see in Genesis chapter 40 that that God was shaping and honing Joseph to be like the greater Joseph to come. He was crafting him into a blade of redemption that God would use powerfully in the life of his people now this is the point um when we read genesis chapter 40 and really the entire meta-narrative of joseph we're given this not merely to comfort us in our own disappointments and, and surely it does it does comfort us to read joseph's story we can identify with him but we're not merely meant to be comforted but two things one we're to be reminded that god is shaping us too He's using the refining fires of life to do something remarkable in our life, not only to make us more like Jesus, but also to make us into a sharp sword of deliverance and redemption that can be used by God in the life of others in this world. And secondly, too, to show us how we also might be able to trust God and live by faith, especially during those difficult times. Okay, so we have three points today. The second point's gonna be the longest one, but three points. Uh, first off, when suffering comes, we must learn to trace God's providence. We see this in verses uh, one through four. In verse one, we see that Joe had been in prison for some time. Now we're not exactly sure how long some time um, you know, equaled, but we do know that it's been approximately 11 years since Joseph had been sold into slavery by his brothers in the first place now what we are confident in knowing is that in those 11 years Joseph's life was lay mis it was miserable lots of miserable things happened to him we're also confident in knowing that in his grace God was providentially in control of every moment of those 11 years and he was providentially caring for Joseph Let's think about providence. Don't you find it interesting that when we think about providence, we usually contribute it to only those things that work out well for us? You know, so for example, you know, on my way to work today, I almost get hit by an 18-wheeler, but providentially, God saved me. Which is true. God providentially did save us. But don't you find it interesting that we, we rarely do not we rarely contribute God's providence to when bad things happen? And we never do that. In fact, our reaction is usually the opposite. This bad thing happened to me, therefore God providentially is not in control, or he forgot about me, or I deserve that. But we have to dissuade ourselves from thinking that way, because as we look into the scriptures and are reminded of by theologians and our um, catechism, shorter catechism, God's providence, those are his acts of kindness, governance, and, and guarding of his creatures, particularly his people. Everything, not just good things, but everything God is governing for our good and his glory. Not just the good things, but also the bad things. Now, practically, what that means is, is that when suffering comes, right? You and I need to learn how to trace God's providence. How to look for his providence when those bad things happen. The reformers called this the digitus dei, that is the finger of God. When bad things happen, when Martin Luther was experiencing terrible things in his life, um, both inwardly and outwardly, he looked for the digitus Dei, the finger of God. Where is God in this? And he looked for it. And he saw the hand of God in things. I think Joseph did too. I mean, just think about Joseph's life. For example, in, in chapter 37, when his brothers, those closest to him, betrayed him, beat him within an inch of his life, almost killed him, was planning to kill him, but last second decided to sell him into slavery, threw him in a pit. We know from our study in chapter 37 that, that that was miserable. Joseph wasn't smiling through that whole ordeal. He was grieving. He wailed. He cried out. But still, what was he thinking in the bottom of that pit? This is mostly inference, but we can conclude that Joseph was tracing the finger of God? What was he thinking in that bottom of the pit? Well, first off, he knew that he was a member of a very important family. His great-grandfather, Abraham, talked to the Lord. He received a, a massive promise from the Lord that Abraham's family would be a blessing to the world, that there would be a seed in Abraham's family that would be the redeemer of all things and God's people. And so uh, Joseph had that in his mind. In addition to those those two dreams that God had given Joseph, that somehow, some way, God was going to use Joseph powerfully in order to bring about those promises. Now Joseph's lot wasn't going well. He was in a bad place, but he was still alive, and he must have been clinging to those promises. So I'm not sure what God's doing, but I'm still alive. Therefore, his his promises are still on. We're still a go. He was he was he was thinking about that. Secondly, in Genesis chapter thirty-nine, as as I believe Todd taught us last week, uh, Joseph is wrongfully accused, um, maliciously so, by Potiphar's wife. Potiphar um, throws Joseph in prison. Then we get to Genesis chapter forty, and we see that while in prison, he is promoted to warden, essentially. I mean, he is a head of the prison as a prisoner. (laughs) It's amazing. But who promoted him? The captain of the guard. Who was the captain of the guard? Well, think back to Genesis chapter 39. Potiphar was the captain of the guard. So here's this man, Potiphar, who believes Joseph tried to take advantage of his wife. Now, in any other circumstance, Potiphar would have had Joseph killed. All right, because that was a, a huge offense and Potiphar had the power to do it. But he didn't. And not only did he not kill Joseph, but he promoted him to a position of influence. What had Joseph been thinking in that? Oh, God favors me. I don't know why I'm in this predicament in the first place, but I know God favors me. He's preserving me. He's guarding me. Then, mainly in our passage, while, while warden of the prison, we see that providentially God brings two high court officials from Pharaoh to the very prison that he was in charge of. We see that God turned Pharaoh's heart against his men, also leading Pharaoh to bring those men to this prison, one of whom would end up being the gateway to the palace of Pharaoh. Now, Joseph probably didn't see all of that, but he knew at least two things. One, he knew that this was pretty peculiar that those two guards, that those two high court officials would be brought to this prison. Therefore, God is so powerful and so mighty, he is providentially in control of the lives and the actions of other men, even pagan men, in order to bless his covenant people, which is same true of us. God is in control of all things, working out all things in history and in life to bless his church and the world. Joseph also knew, too, when he, when he saw those two men, that somehow, way when those prison doors closed in Genesis 39, that would eventually lead to the opening of the palace doors in Genesis chapter 41. What was Joseph thinking? God is with me. And even in the fog of, of not really understanding what is going on, God is working for me. Joseph, trace the digitus Dei. What's the point, brothers? There's going to be miserable things that happen to us, things that we can't explain, things that that we won't understand on this side of of heaven. But when we have the eyes of faith, right, and and we're, we're tracing God's providence, what we're going to find out is that when we look back on our lives, you and I will never, ever be able to say that God stopped loving us that God stopped caring for us. God was always there. He was always working for us. He was always loving us and doing things, uh, remarkable things in our lives. We'll never be able to say that God stopped loving us when we trace God's providence. I think Joseph understood that. I love what John Calvin in his commentary says. He says, before God opened the prison door for his servants' deliverance, God entered into that very prison to sustain Joseph with his own strength. Through his providence, God was giving him tokens of his love. Tokens of, or, or acts of providence, of bringing those officials to the, uh, the prison, of promoting Joseph in that prison. Calvin says that through those actions, God was giving him tokens of his love, as if he were drawing close and saying, Joseph, if the world has forgotten you, if your brothers are delighted that you're gone, I have not forgotten you. And I have a plan for you. So every time that one of those things happened, Joseph, Joseph was was seeing them as a token of God's love, as, as a little reminder that God was with him, that God loved him, that God was working for us. God, Or brothers, do, do, you, do you read God's providence that way? When you're in your right mind, do you read God's providence that way? That even in the mysterious, unexplainable, sufferable moments in our life, somehow, some way, God is drawing near to you. And do you hear his heavenly whisper that says, I have a plan for your life? I know you don't understand. I know that life is foggy right now, but I'm working for you. Trust me. And brothers, that's exactly what he's doing. In Jesus Christ, we are divinely and perfectly and forever loved by God. As he loved Christ, he loves us because we're united to Jesus. He loves us perfectly. He he is guarding us. He's preserving us. He's the master of our life. Our days are numbered. Our our lives are in his hands. And, And we can trust that the God who is causing the stars and the, the planet's to orbit is moving everything in our life for our good and his glory when suffering comes first we must learn to trace the providence of god the digitus dei secondly we must apply our faith we see this in verses primarily verses 5 through 20 in verses 5 through 20 the the two court officials, the cupbearer and the baker, they have these crazy dreams and Joseph and Joseph interacts with them. And in those interactions, we see that when suffering comes, we must apply our faith or rather we must have active faith. Now, it's true that you and I are to trace God's providence. We are to live in the hope that God is sovereign over all things, that he's in control of all things. Absolutely. But brothers, the Bible never says that we are to live passively. You know, sometimes, especially as Calvinists, we tend to live passively. We, you know, God's sovereign over all things. Therefore, I don't have to do much. God's in control. We, you know, certainly when, when hard times come, we can lean that way. But just think about Joseph. Joseph had every reason to curl up into the fetal position and to give in to his misery and feel sorry for himself and just, you know, console himself with his own self-pity. He had had every physical and outward and mental and emotional reason to do that, but he didn't, which I find extraordinary. He, He knew that he was loved by God. He knew that God cared for him. He knew that God was with him. And what? He lived actively in light of that had an active faith. And we see this in a couple of different ways. First off, he walked by the Spirit. I see this in verse 5 and 8. With Joe's interactions uh, with these two prisoners, it is clear that the Holy Spirit had been working in his heart, in Joseph's heart. And we see that because Joseph was actively living out what the Holy Spirit was working in. First off, in verses 5 and, uh, through 7, Joseph had a new compassion I find this interesting that these two official uh, members of the Pharaoh's court, they had sinned greatly against Pharaoh, all right, which was a no-no, okay? You don't don't play with Pharaoh. He was the most dangerous and powerful man of the land. And they had sinned against him. It was actually a measure of grace. They weren't killed on the spot. Again, God was providentially in control. Um, He spared those men's lives. Uh, for the moment of bringing them to this prison so Joseph could have an interaction with them. But nevertheless, they sinned against Pharaoh, and their lives were in trouble. Furthermore, they had these very weird and ominous, scary dreams. In the Egyptian culture, uh, Middle Eastern culture, dreams were of huge importance. Um, They were connected with the divine, and so they, they, they saw these dreams not as just, you know, just strange dreams. They knew there was something important about them, and they didn't know how to interpret them. And so they were fearful, and they were dreading the possibility of what the future might hold. But notice Joseph. Joseph compassionately, compassionately enters their lives. He noticed that their faces were downcast, and he acted upon that. He entered into their story. Now, why is that significant? It's significant because... Remember when we first met Joseph in Genesis 37, he was the furthest thing from compassion, compassionate. I mean, you could even say that he was cruel to- towards his brothers, the way that he related the dreams that he had. He was indifferent to their feelings, but not here. He, he entered into their lives. Furthermore, Joseph had no reason to enter into these people's lives. These, these uh, high court officials, why? Because they were bad guys. They belonged in prison. Um, they had done something to sin against Pharaoh. Furthermore, they were pagans. Joseph here, here he is a, a child of God, and that he was in prison and he was innocent. he had he had no reason to trouble himself with these with these fellas, but he entered their lives. He had compassion on them. Why? Isn't that how the Holy Spirit works? He shapes us through our own experiences. I mean, Most people don't care about the loneliness of others unless they themselves have suffered loneliness. We aren't compassionate with people who suffer from depression or anxiety unless we ourselves or someone that we love suffers from those same things too. God was using, the Holy Spirit was using these experiences in in Joseph's life to soften his heart to make him a compassionate person. The Holy Spirit was working compassion in him. At the same time, he was sharpening Joseph to be a mighty tool of redemption to be used by God in the life of others. The Holy Spirit was working compassion in and Joseph was living that out. He didn't feel sorry for himself. He cared about these people. He entered into their suffering as someone who has suffered. Secondly, we see that Joseph was God reflexed. We see this in verse 8b. Not only was he compassionate now, he was also God reflexed. As these two pa- uh, prisoners shared their plight with Joseph, right? Um, he, uh, uh, they, 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 they then said, Joseph, please interpret these dreams. And what was the first thing that Joseph did? He referenced God. Joseph, please interpret these dreams. And Joseph said, do not interpretations belong to God. It was this knee-jerk response from Joseph. It was a reflex. It was a knee-jerk reaction. And as you and I know, knee-jerk reactions usually reveal what's going on underneath the surface. Right? Because we don't have time to posture. We don't have time to polish our words. A knee-jerk reaction. (laughs) They reveal what's in the heart and what is his knee-jerk reaction reveal, it reveals that he was extremely God-focused. And we know that being God-focused doesn't happen by accident. It's the result of having your mind habitually trained on God. He habitually trained his mind on the Word of God, what he knew to be true of the Lord. uh, His abode, his home was in God's Word. Which is so extraordinary because oftentimes when we suffer and go through miserable things, we go to the things of this world to, to self-medicate, to, to get our mind off of it. But not Joseph. Joseph was so fixated on God's word that he was reflexed by God's word, which is extraordinary. So he he, he, was, he, had, he, was, he had a compassionate heart. It was God reflexed. Thirdly, he had defiant belief. He had a strong belief. We see this in 8c. After he says, don't all interpretations belong to God? He then says, please tell me your dreams. (laughs) What Joseph was doing there, he was making a strong declaration of belief in his own dreams. Right? Because remember, Joseph, he, he believed he had the gift of interpretation. He interpreted his own dreams 11 years ago. 11 years have passed and miserable things have happened that would tell the normal Joe that those dreams of yours probably weren't real or at least your interpretations were off. But but the mere fact that he offers to interpret these men's dreams meant that he still believed that he had the gift of interpretation, which meant that he still believed in the interpretation of his dreams, that God was still in control and that God was going to use him powerfully. And he believed that. (laughs) This is why in, in Hebrews 11, verse 1, where it says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That was Joseph. That's why Joseph is included in Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith. He had a defiant belief. Many things happened and, and, and changed Joseph since he was 17 years old. He was, he had, he had a compassionate heart. God um, was working things in his life. And we know that because, well, Joseph was now living them out. He was walking by the spirit. He had an act of faith. brothers, Do you understand that all of the resources and all of those things that Joseph experienced, you and I have, and more so? You and I are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We have the same resources of the the Holy Spirit is indwelling us, transforming us more and more into the image of Jesus. And we are called to live those things out, even in our suffering. In fact, it's those who have suffered that God uses most in the lives of others and in this world. He is sharpening us to be massive tools of redemption and restoration. We have an active faith, walk by the Spirit. Secondly, we see that he had an active faith because he applied reason. We see this in verses 9 through 15. After after Joseph told the cupbearer the meaning of his dreams, notice Joseph said in, in 14 through 15, after you are released, please remember me to Pharaoh so I will be released. So he says, cupbearer, after you get out of here, please remember me and get me out of here. Now, a lot of commentators, not a lot, but a, a good bit, um, use this to criticize Joseph. They, 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 they essentially position or, or posit that if if he had true faith, he simply would have waited on the Lord, that uh, he wouldn't have, have tried to convince this cupbearer to release him from prison. It shows that he was aligning himself with the things of this world. He was not exhibiting faith. He should have waited on the Lord. I just think that's dumb. right? And other commentators do too. It's not just me, but it is kind of dumb. It reminds me of this, uh, this Mississippi parable uh, that my dad used to tell me. Um, imagine that the delta is flooding and the water is rising and everybody's on their roofs to be saved. And here's this one guy, we'll just call him Barton. He's on his roof water's rising and this little John boat, a neighbor comes by and says, Barton, hop in the boat. I'll lead you to dry land. And Barton says, no, 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 no. Don't worry about me. God's got me. God told me he was going to save me. You go ahead and go. So the John boat goes off. Water keeps rising. It's, it's over the roof now. I mean, you're just kind of sitting in water at this point <clears throat> and a rescue boat comes by, you know, a lifeguard. He's, he, you know, uh, he, he's got the uh, life preservers and all those things. He throws you a rope and you say, oh, don't worry about it. You you go save someone else. God's got me. God told me he would save me. And the guy goes, okay. And he, he goes on. Finally, the water's up by your neck and a, and a helicopter comes by and drops a rope to you. And, and you say, don't worry about me. You wave him off. Um, you Go save someone else. God told me he was going to save me. And so the helicopter goes and eventually Martin dies. He goes to heaven He goes past the gates of St. Peter, goes into the Lord's office and says, God, I thought you were going to save me. He goes, well, Barton, I sent you a John boat, a rescue boat and a helicopter. (laughs) What else did you want? The point is, brothers, we're to have an active faith. We're to live in light of what we know to be true of God. And that's exactly what Joseph did here. He was living by faith. He had such faith, such hope in the providence of God that he knew God brought these two men to the prison. And Joseph lived in light of that. That's why he made his plea to cutbearer. It was out of a lack of faith. It was out of confidence that God brought those men to him. And it turns out Joseph was right too because that cutbearer would end up being the, the key to his release. He just got the timing off. But he wasn't boasting his own plans. He wasn't aligning himself with the wicked ways of this world. He was living in light of what he knew to be true of God. He applied reason, right? So he walked by the Spirit. He applied reason. And lastly, he proclaimed truth. We see this in verses 16 through 20. Listen, when Joseph applies or rather interprets these two dreams, he was in a pickle. I mean, he really was. Just think about it. These guys had bad dreams. He had the gift of interpretation. The cupbearer comes and he says, Joseph, interpret my dreams. And Joseph says, hey, man, it's going to be great. Uh, Your your head's going to be lifted. You're going to be released from here. You're going to be restored to your old position. And in three days' time, everything's great. Then the cupbearer hears this. (laughs) The cupbearer comes and he goes, oh, everything goes well with him. Go ahead and tell me the interpretation of my dream. And Joseph says, you know, well, your head's going to be lifted too. Um, Not in the way that you probably would prefer, but in fact, it's going to be lifted clean off your shoulders. Can you imagine just the intimidation that Joseph had in relating the interpretation of the baker's dream? I mean, this baker at, at least was a very powerful and dangerous man in the court of Pharaoh. At most, he was a very hardened and dangerous criminal that was three feet away from him. Can you imagine what was going through Joseph's mind? I try to put myself in that position. And, you know, I probably would have at least been tempted to do two things. One, okay, this guy is going to die in three days. I don't want to make his life more miserable. So I'm just going to hold my tongue. Or I don't want my life to become miserable. So out of self-preservation, I'm not going to tell him a word. I mean, I'm in prison. I don't want this hardened criminal after me. Joseph didn't do that. Why? I mean, he shared truth. Truth. Why did he share truth? Not to be vindictive, not to be cruel, but first off, to give God glory. He said these interpretations are of God. God gave me this interpretation, and I don't think he gave me this interpretation just to sit on it. He gave it for me to share to you, ultimately for God's glory. But but secondly, too, listen, by sharing these dreams, these interpretations, Joseph Rather, God, through Joseph, gave that baker an opportunity to repent. He probably still would have been killed by Pharaoh, but at least he had an opportunity to be restored to God, the one true God. So he spoke truth to him. He proclaimed truth powerfully even when he was in a bad spot himself. What does this tell us? Well, we don't deal in dreams anymore. God has given us something infinitely better. He's given us his word. And just like Joseph and just like Paul after him, we've been given that word. And therefore, we are indebted to other people to share the truth of the Lord. Why? Because as Paul says in Romans chapter one, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So even when we don't know what's happening to us, why things are going on in the way that they are in our lives, even if we're suffering, we do know one thing. We have God's word, which is powerful. It's the revelation of God. And at the very least, we know to to share that with other folks. Uh, Joseph was, was applying his faith. His life tells us, it's a reminder for us not to be stuck in our own misery, not to curl up into the fetal position, even to use our sufferable moments for God's glory, because God's going to use us um, as broken vessels, that's, that's where he brings himself the most glory. That's when he does the most damage in a positive sense for his kingdom by using broken people, suffering people like us in the lives of others and in this world. We must learn to trace the providence of God, uh, to remind ourselves that God loves us. He's with us. He, he's, he's caring for us. He's providing us. He's, gov- he's governing us. He's guarding us. But then to live in light of that, applying our faith, for the sake of other people, and for God's glory. Lastly, when suffering comes, we see this in verses 21 through 23, we must live and wait patiently. We must learn to wait patiently. Um, In verses 21 through 23, every interpretation of Joseph proved to be true. (laughs) I mean, everything. I mean, to the finest detail, everything proved to be true. And how encouraging that might have been for Joseph, right? I mean, because... This is the first proof in the pudding that he is a good interpreter of dreams. I mean, this is a trial run. His, his interpretations were correct, which means that he can assume that that surely the interpretations of my dreams are correct. This is great news, and so so after that, his interpretations of of the cupbearer and the baker turned to be true. He must have thought to himself, "I'm about to be released. Everything's going to go great." He must have been dancing. Ah, but after the cupbearers release, what happens? Uh, The cupbearer forgot him. And it's not just it slipped his mind. He purposely forgot. He, He used Joseph and he went about his day. Two years pass when the cupbearer finally remembers. And it was to his advantage to tell Pharaoh about Joseph. But two years pass. Another blow. More disappointment. More sadness. More, God, where are you in this? Now, let's just think to ourselves what God might have been doing. Remember, at the very beginning, we say that God is doing many different things at once, oftentimes in the same action. Many different amazing things, not just in the life of Joseph, but also in the life of others. First off, God was building Joseph's faith. He was building it. He was continually shaping Joseph to be this sharp tool of redemption and restoration to be used by God. He was crafting uh, Joseph to be like the greater Joseph to come, but he was also building him in this, this marvelous faith. This is what Calvin said. He said, God was increasing Joseph's faith by teaching him, showing him not to trust God's purposes by his senses, but rather to trust God for his grace and to believe in the goodness of his providence, essentially what that means is is that god was was honing him, he was chipping off the rough edges, and through his suffering, God was producing a hope in in joseph 's life a hope that would never put him to shame, a hope that was defiant, a hope um, that would that would never fail him. it was a hope that would not disappoint as Paul tells us in Romans. God was building him into a faith giant. God was with him, cultivating his faith. So first off, God was building his faith. Secondly, God was showcasing his own glory. I mean, just think about this. Had God delivered Joseph through that cupbearer initially, Joseph would have been tempted of thinking that cupbearer was his rescuer. All right, so, so much like we see in the Gospels in John chapter 11, when um, Mary and Martha run to Jesus to tell him about their brother Lazarus, that he was sick and that he was dying, right? Um, had Jesus not delayed and he had gotten there while, jo- or while Lazarus was still alive and, of course, healed him, Mary and Martha would have been tempted in believing that Jesus, you know, he had a really great end with God. But by delaying um, and Jesus then raising Lazarus from the dead, Mary and Martha didn't think that Jesus had an end of God. They saw him to be the son of God. His glory shined through that. Listen, when, when we are saved from something, when someone delivers us from a tight spot, of course, they're going to be the object of our affection. That's a good thing. But when we know from beyond a shadow of a doubt that it was God who delivered us, that it was God who intervened, (laughs) we are struck with holy awe. When we know that, oh, I can clearly see God in that. God is the one who is with me. God was the one who delivered me. I didn't see how he was going to do it, but now I understand God was my rescuer. We are filled with holy awe awe when that happens. And this is what John Calvin says. He says, that end, that holy awe, that end is worth years of suffering. And Joseph was about to understand that. But God was building him in faith. God was showcasing his glory. Thirdly and lastly and finally, God was saving his people. Through this, God was not only working on behalf of Joseph, but on behalf of all of his people. Isn't it amazing that through this one act of injustice, not only was God doing something marvelous in the life of Joseph, but God was also doing something marvelous in the life of others. You know, I've said this often. Oftentimes, we will never know why why we suffer in this life, but we can rest assured that God is doing a million different things through it. And not just for us, but, but for others. And surely that's what God was, was doing here. Uh, Joseph was forgotten by the cupbearer, but God had a purpose in that. You see, the Pharaoh needed to be indebted to Joseph's wisdom Right. Not only because not only did Joseph need to be freed, but he needed to be exalted to a place of power. Right. So so Pharaoh needed to be in a spot where he needed to rely on Joseph's wisdom for himself. So Joseph wanted freedom, but God's purpose was greater than that. He was about to make Joseph into a savior of his people. God's plan meant frustration and confusion and suffering For Joseph, but but God's plan was perfect. God's plan was perfect. Joseph was learning just like the rest of us brothers, but still Joseph knew that he needed to wait patiently because God was honing him. God was shaping him. God was working him to be a fine instrument, a fine sword, an instrument of God's deliverance and salvation. And brothers, I know it doesn't always seem like it, but God is doing the same thing in your life and he's doing the same thing in my life. God is so in control, so powerful, so in love with us that he's using even difficult things to bless us. Not only to bless us, but also to use us to bless other people. He he is shaping us to little images of Jesus He is honing us and he is crafting us to be mighty instruments of redemption in the lives of others. He's going to use us, even our sufferings, to bless other people. All we need to do is learn to trace God's providence. When we don't see him, when when he seems distant, trace the, the digitus dei. And you will understand, you will know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God loves you. God is working with you and he is for you. Don't just wait by passively. Get going. Live out the faith that the Holy Spirit has has worked in. And lastly, wait patiently. Because again, God is doing multiple things. He's building us in faith. He's causing us to have a hope that will not disappoint. And he's using us in ways that we couldn't even possibly understand in this life. But we can trust that he is using us. For his glory, Brothers, I hope that this is uh, hopeful to you. I hope it's an encouragement to you as we live as yet in another week as broken people in a broken world. But those who have hope that one day soon uh, we will be made perfect in the very image of Christ, living peaceably in the presence and the glorious presence of our Lord now and forever. But until then, let us live with hope that God loves us, that he is with us, and he is using us for his glory and for his purposes. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for this week. We pray that uh, you would cause us to fixate our eyes upon you, that we would be God-focused and that we wouldn't curl up um, in defeat when bad things happen, but that we would have hope that you are with us, that you are in love with us and that you're using us for your purposes. So help us to live by faith. Um, Empower us by your spirit to be your swords of redemption in a world Um, that needs redemption. We love you, Father. And it's in the blessed name of the risen Christ we pray. Amen. See you, brothers.